Hello and welcome to episode one of Glass Ceiling, a new fortnightly podcast from the team at Startup Daily. My name is Gina Baldessari. And I'm James Ward. As the name of this podcast might suggest, Glass Ceiling, on this show we're going to be exploring the tech and innovation ecosystem through talking to people beyond just straight white males. Hey! But it's true. We'll be exploring everything from venture capital to gaming during in-depth conversations with a range of high-profile guests who, despite not playing up to the stereotype of what someone in tech should look like, have smashed through the proverbial glass ceiling to kick goals in their field. Our first guest is Kara Frederick, a Silicon Valley native who has spent her career at the intersection of innovation and technology. Among others, she's worked at Goldman Sachs and with Growth Point Technology Partners and joined investment firm Reinventure Group as its first general partner back in March. So how did you come to be at Reinventure? Yeah, well, I think... Like most of us, um, our career is around relationships. So um, I formed a working relationship with Danny and with Simon, the two co-founders, probably a year and a half ago, uh, talking to them about their portfolio. And we were originally introduced through a a mutual uh, business associate who we had both done work for and trusted work with Entrusted. Um, and that was the kind of initial introduction. And then we did a little work looking at some deals together and just kept the conversation. I think um, I would describe it as I felt really instant chemistry or connection with Danny and with Simon and how they think about the world. And in a business context or in a personal context, whether it's a friendship or, or a partnership, which which Reinventure is, it's, we're three partners together that's pretty critical to feel like your values are aligned and how you look at the world is is similar, but you all bring different strengths to the partnership and, and that's what's eventuated. So it was kind of a, frankly, a natural extension of our conversation to think about working together. Okay. So what's the actual, I suppose, relationship there, the working relationship mm-hmm. between Westpac and the reinventure team like? What kind of influence, I suppose, does Westpac have in your role? That's an excellent question. And I think how you articulated that is very good because truthfully, in most contexts, people don't really look at the finer print, which is how um, a venture capital firm or a, a corporate venture capital firm in this instance is structured. And those structures and those incentives drive behavior just like they do in any organization. So sort of in the backdrop, I I grew up in Silicon Valley and I grew up at a time when, frankly, the venture capital industry was in its nascency. So I um, have seen firms basically start the industry, start the asset class. um, And now we're in probably the third kind of mini generation or cycle within venture capital in Silicon Valley. And so it's in its kind of three pseudo generations corporate venture capital has been part of that from the beginning. And so reInventure and Westpac really is an extension of, of CVC in an Australian context with a very specific incentive structure, which does provide for certain outcomes we think are m- more beneficial to our founders um, than potentially some other types of structures. But let me get let me get more specific what that means is. So one thing that the industry learned as a whole, this means the vac- venture capital industry and the corporate venture capital industry has learned in the last 30 years, is that when you have a 
corporate venture capital fund that's on balance sheet. That means that it is it is sharing resources, financial resources, with the corporate sponsor. Um, that it's uh, less clear in terms of how the investment process um, follows and how the managers are um, compensated, and also how founders can expect to receive support and direction from their investors, um, it's it's less clear than it is in a very clear separate structure as in the case of reinventure. So we believe best practice is having a, a separate structure where it's very clear how the incentives are aligned for them between the managers and then how they support their um you know their investee companies and it, it's a it's transparent um in terms of fund flows. Um, it's transparent in terms of terms and conditions that also drive incentives. And and that's one of the the core distinctions between how reinventure and Westpac have come together, and frankly, any other CVC that I am aware of in the Australian market, and many of the CVCs that are still in Silicon Valley. Although there's there is a growing number that have adopted this model, which is having a, a separate structure, fund structure. So, what's the result of having that structure? So, okay, so that's kind of so. Why are the how does the structure and how do those incentives drive behavior? And what kind of behavior does that sort of drive? And that really comes to um, the practice of what I've been doing with Danny and Simon in the last few months and what they've been doing over the course of the last three years. And we we believe that we sit at the intersection of really big, interesting opportunities, disruptive technological opportunities, um, and the best founders and um, fintech and how those that disruption may impact um, some of the largest financial institutions, including Westpac. But we do that without the constraints of the day-to-day or quarter-to-quarter um, targets that any publicly listed and most especially large publicly listed financial institution, the obligations that they have, um, which are different than for a venture capital firm, which needs to be long-term because we're talking about 10-plus year fund cycles, um, that's patient capital. And patient capital and quarterly results and incentives around quarterly results, frankly, do not go together well. And so we can be we can be more patient. We, we need to to look beyond the horizon, so beyond what Westpac or banks are doing today or maybe the incremental improvement, the incremental distribution improvement or technological tweak. We have to look a, a couple rings beyond the horizon and say, well, how are consumers going to be interacting digitally with their bank in, in five years? Yeah, that's an interesting point because, you know, as you were saying, like corporate venture capital, it can be, well, it's very hot right now. People are really wanting to to get into it or businesses are wanting to get into it. But then, you know, if it's not the flavor of the month anymore and the business's own performance isn't going so mm-hmm. well, mm-hmm. you know, they might want to shut that down like mm-hmm. AMP shutting mm-hmm. down its venture capital arm. So Westpac, you know, last, the other week announced, um, you know, it's $4 billion profit. That doesn't really have an impact on on you guys, you know, making you breathe a little easier. And on the flip side, if, you know, the bank isn't doing so well, announces not such a great performance, no impact on you guys, so, or do you, is it still yeah, in the back so of that's, your mind? So that's an, another excellent point. I, honestly, I'm, I'm not just saying this because we're being recorded. <laughs> so, so, yeah. So, look, we're all, you know, 
the day-to-day temptations of performing to clients who are complaining or to public market results. I mean, I spent um, I spent a large chunk of my career as a public market equity analyst for Goldman in San Francisco and New York covering technology companies. So I, you know, frankly was part of the problem because I was pushing, um, you know, based on buy, sell, and hold recommendations, I was pushing technology companies and large public listed companies to, you know, perform on a quarterly basis. And um, the, the market's quite punishing in that regard and what consensus estimates you know, what expectations are. So, you know, I've seen how that does materially impact the behavior of, of you know, business strategy for large corporations. And yeah, we, we don't, our funds are long-term. The capital has already been committed. The terms are set. So for fund one and fund two, you know, yeah, the, the vagaries of the market from a month to month or, you know, even year to year basis are not going to directly impact us. And that kind of patient capital is not something you just, you know, that, that the CEO of Westpac's just kind of talking talking about or or giving sort of, you know, saying the right things about that that's in our contract. It's in the structure. So um it he's walking he's he's walking the talk. Um so what I've seen in the cases of AMP and others, and this was certainly part of what I have seen in the previous cycles of CVC, you know, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of CVCs littered across um Silicon Valley. And so, and there have been cycles of funding, up cycles and in down cycles. And traditionally what happens is in up cycles, particularly on balance sheet, it's easy to quote unquote start a fund because you just carve out part of the balance sheet and the balance sheet's already there. And it's it's really linked to, you know, potentially cash flow generation or the health of the, of the underlying corporate business. But the minute things get tough, that money goes away. It's 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 contestable. It's more contestable, and you don't have funds to spend. That becomes difficult for your investments because you don't have follow-on investment money. So companies who your founders who were hope you know who were expecting you to be at least in your you know pro rata participations no longer have that support. Um, and you know, in some cases, it can it can be even more draconian for the, for the companies, and and you can't you can't really make investments based on themes over time and high conviction. It's based on the vagaries of the market in essence. So, so yeah, so it, it's an excellent point. We don't have that. I mean, my understanding, I'm, I don't have an intimate understanding of the AMP structure, but my understanding is, yes, they were an on-balance sheet fund. And, you know, ultimately that's, you are dependent on the parent company. You are a small piece of the parent company. And as the, you know, the parent company rises and falls, you will, you know, you're the tail. <laughs> yeah. So talking about, you know, the the rises and falls of, of the market yep. and different companies, you mentioned, you know, your time at Goldman, mm-hmm. you know, you were kind of analyzing different companies and pushing different ones. If you had your time again, is there an example in particular that you'd be like, oh, I'd make a different decision this time? Um, well, I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that because, I mean, one thing we do know about equity research analysts broadly, it doesn't matter what bank you're associated with, they're more wrong than they're right. So um, if you actually, and there's m- many, um, you know, data analysts have taken this, this data and actually mapped it and, and uh, proved that quite well. So <laughs> um, some analysts, in fact, are better contraindicators than they are. So people actually trade against their recommendations quite frequently. I'm, I'm happy to say I don't believe I was one of those. But, um, you know, so in terms of the accuracy of a buy, sell and hold forecast, I, you know, that that's... That actually is secondary to really the research and analysis behind the fundamentals of the companies. And one of the big differences, 
when I was an equity research analyst in technology and today, which does scare me a little bit, to be honest, is that a lot of the companies, and on a positive side, um, in the in the dot-com and post-dot-com era, era, they were public companies. What that means is when you're public, there are um, obligations, regu- you know, perf- um you know, reporting obligations. No, so on the downside is you have you know these quarterly results you have to to perform to. But on the upside, particularly um, when the companies become a, you know billion, multi billion dollar valuation companies, these were public companies. So you could actually understand are these realistic valuations? Are the so as the market corrected itself, it could do so because um, there was high quality of information that was transparent, readily available, publicly available for us to all analyze. Today, that's not the case. We've had you know unicorns come from a handful to several hundred within a few year period of time, and it's and many times there is some secondary trading that goes on in, in some of these names. And so it becomes a little bit more transparent, but certainly transparency is just not there in the same way, way it was. So putting my equity research analyst hat on today, I mean, I, I certainly would say I wasn't always right on the calls that I made in the past, but but at least I had the information and today the market doesn't. And so I do, I am curious if, if valuations are, you know, appropriate. Okay. So looking at uh, the work you're doing now, yep. um, something I was reading that you said that I found was really interesting and, you know, looking at your investment thesis now with, with reInventure, you said that a lot of um, fintech startups right now are not actively disrupting the the banks or, or the financial services market, rather they're more creating like sustaining innovation products. Can you tell me a yep. little bit about that? What do you mean by that? So there's some... So innovation is obviously a very generic and overused concept. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> like millennial and a bunch of other terms. But um, but I think that when you look um, at, at technology and innovation within the context of financial services, um, there's kind of three ways that most financial services firms look at something new. And they either look at it as something they need to buy, they're going to build, um, or they're going to partner. So our thesis within reinventure is we are really focusing on the disruption, the the real systemic changes and 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 shifts that are going on within fintech. So that means we're not focused on um, the build opportunities, the opportunities that the bank's actually going to go ahead and just see it as an extension of an existing product offering, and so they're going to redeploy internal resources, maybe bring in some external consultants, maybe have some incremental, you know, product, um, you know, product functionality. But really, it's not it's not a disruption. It's just another service they're providing in the same channel. So we're focused more on the build, uh, sorry, on the on the buy and the partner opportunities. So buy because it's really important functionality that they're not going to be able to – it's not a near term, so they're not going to be able to build it. Or partner because, again, they're, they're not going to be able to, to build it, but they need that functionality for their clients. So that's kind of broadly speaking how we think about that. Now, how that actually translates varies according to um, which division of the bank we're looking at or which you know, kind of focus area that we're looking at. Um, one area that we think is clearly very disruptive is – the loan space. So whether it's uh, peer-to-peer lending or it's, um, you know, consumer loans or it's, um, you know, SME loans, that whole space, what's happening is, particularly in a digital environment, in a digital context, um, is that banks 
are at the risk of being disintermediated with their clients because there are now channels and products and financing that's available direct to consumers or to companies without having to go into a bank. And those products and that distribution is actually not something that uh, most banks can um, effectively uh, build in-house in a kind of a in a near-term way. And so we're you know we made an investment in society one that speaks to peer-to-peer lending, which we think is again just sort of a little past the horizon of what of what the large banks are doing today. Um, there's a, we made an investment in Valiant, um, which is a company we're really excited about, where they are um, in part an aggregator of SME and and and, and business loans, um, and they provide transparency to that to that segment of the market, and they do it in a very effective and you know digital digitally friendly way. Um, it, so these are you know these are the types of areas that we believe the large banks. Um, are at the risk of being disintermediated, and they, they won't have an answer to in the, in the near term necessarily. Um, when you look at the sustaining innovation front, you know, we talked a little bit about one of the challenges we've seen in the wealth management industry is um, is a lot. some of the innovations we've seen there have really just been another product feature or function, but not actually something that is entirely a new channel or a new um, – a new way of engaging customers. Um, you know, it's not truly disruptive. So that's that's kind of the one of the distinguishing points. So something I've read that I found really interesting is that you said that for any potential investment you consider, you believe 80% of the value is in the founder and only 20% is in the idea. So is that something unique for you at reInventure or have you seen it elsewhere? And what does that evaluation actually look like? Yeah, so I have been an investor um, most of my investment experience as an investor has been later stage, so pseudo private equity, um, kind of later stage venture capital and or more of a private equity model. Now, the closer you get to a more mature business, the more it is financial engineering. The less it is about the vision, the execution, and the founder, and the more it is about um, kind of you know the financials uh, of the business. And so as I've gone down that value chain into, you know, real kind of, you know, seed, series A and um, investments, that really is, it's a, it's a dream and it's a founder and it's execution. And there are a lot of good ideas. There are a lot of excellent ideas. But to find somebody who can actually execute with, um, you know, diabolical focus is what makes a great venture capital investment, particularly in the earlier stages. So, so yeah, a lot of my due diligence is around, you know, reading our founders, understanding, you know, their level of experience, their tenacity, um, you know, how, how much of a hacker are they to get, to get the problem solved? Um, in many instances, you're, you're creating industries. So there's not, there's not a roadmap and it, it is, it is lonely. I mean, I, I started my own business in Australia. I started a financial services consulting business, which still exists. And, um, you know, I understand what it means to be a founder and to grow a business and to hire people and to, you know, to grow into change. And, um, so I, Try to look in some, look for some of the same, you know, personality traits that perhaps maybe I have at some level, um, and and try to get you know, much better people <laughs> that I can, you know, you always sort of surround yourself with smarter people. <laughs> so, um, 
So, so that's the goal. So a lot of it's, yeah, it's, it's founder DD and, and, you know, 80% the, the people. So it's interesting that you say you see a lot of good ideas because I think there's this constant debate or conversation in the Australian startup community about, you know, oh, there's not enough funding available for Australian startups. And then you have some other people saying, no, there is plenty of funding available. There's just not um, enough good ideas to actually, you know, take that funding. So what's your your view on that? Would you say yeah. you're seeing so, great ideas? So this goes this goes to ecosystem, which was the, you know, the, the comment you were making before. Um, so what, one thing I have, so, so Silicon, Silicon Valley, um, Community Foundation just came out with their latest 2017 report around several different metrics. But one of the key metrics was ranking global uh, tech ecosystems, of which in, they only ranked 10. Unfortunately, Sydney or no city in Australia came in at all in the top 10. Singapore was there. And a few what I would call tier two cities in the U.S. were on the top ten. London, of course, was there. Tel Aviv, of course, was there. But, but yeah, it was. It's unfortunate that that Australia is not there. And I think um, what I really like about the report, and this is something I think we can do better in Australia, and and each part of the ecosystem can contribute to this, is data. I mean, as if Jeff Bezos has has taught us anything, it's that you know measure measure and be transparent. I'm not sure he's transparent, but be transparent around data in terms of how we are performing and where our gap, where we're doing well and where we're, we're, we have gaps in the ecosystem here. Because one thing, having grown up in Silicon Valley and seen firsthand, whether it's when I, you know, was an intern at, at Sun Microsystems and, you know, working for their executive office in, in strategy or which is now, by the way, Facebook's headquarters, or it was, you know, interactions at Stanford University or um, it was working in, you know, equity research and in, in investing um, in technology. You know, each of the, the the places that I've been in the Silicon Valley tech ecosystem have really shown that one helps grow the other and make and, and make the other better. So, you know, founders, universities, investors, um, you know, mentors, com- you know, CVCs, companies, all of that um, has a response. The government all, all of these functions have the capital markets. They all have a, a really important function to grow a healthy um, in first-class ecosystem. So when you come to the point of there's, you know, kind of the chicken or the egg around investment, I think, you know, you know good ideas with proven founders in, in, in huge market opportunities, they will find money. Uh, they will find a home. Um, I think they're in Australia, one of the, the, it's been interesting to see, first of all, there is more equity funding, more equity investment funding available in Australia today um, in, to the order of something like $2 billion of non-levered um, you know, equity finance that's been raised for startups in the last kind of three or four years from virtually a standing start um, in the prior five-year period. So the kind of the, the, the rate of change has been absolutely dramatic. So um, I'm less empathetic to that argument than I would have been kind of seven years ago. Um, 
so I think the rate of improvement is, is is a good kind of direction. You know, the second part of that is there's actually a really positive, you know, R&D and commercialization um, component to government incentives here. So what I have seen work well, and actually I'd like to see it work even better, and Canada has something that's actually, you know, very positive in this direction, is um, is continuing to promote that. And because um, you, you can see pretty successful companies that can be global. You know, you have to be able to provide um, not just access to the Australian market, but kind of a global platform and kind of be globally competitive in order to really attract and retain the best talent in Australia. And that's really just, it's a it's a talent game to some extent. So so I'd like to see an extension of, of that on the government side. I think that would help. And I think that would also continue to feed the ecosystem. Um in terms of money and people staying and, and, and paying it back. When I look at the the evolution of a company like Atlassian or a company like Campaign Monitor, you know, these are companies that, particularly Atlassian, you know, famous stories around how they, you know, financed that company, you know, 12 or 13 years ago, you know, off the back of credit card debt. Um, and so they didn't have any options. So one thing, one positive side, although, and, and the market's, you know, remarkably improved since then in terms of availability of capital um, and the availability to also access non-Australian-based capital. So within the last few years, there's $2 billion of net new dollars from Australia to Australian companies. But there's also uh, something like a, you know, two to three times that amount that's actually been invested directly by Silicon Valley investors into Australian-founded companies. So there's and that was from a relatively standing start, you know, prior to seven years ago. So the net effect is there's a lot more money. Um, that's good. But more money doesn't necessarily mean better run companies. So um, there's an argument today that – and this goes to my point about opaqueness um, around, you know, unicorn and decacorn valuations and what's actually driving that is, um, you know – is there too much money in the valley right now? And is that actually um, promoting, you know, bad business behaviors um, in terms of, you know, discipline around um, investment and hiring and, and, and that whole cycle? So, so I'd say, I'd say that if a founder um, is too discouraged by what they would consider to be too little money in Australia, then, um, that is almost that is among um, you know it's, it's lower on the threshold of of their concerns. They effectively will not be a successful founder wherever they are because that is that excuse just doesn't hold. You need to. Um, you know, I made this on the Star Wars day a couple of weeks ago. I was presenting and I, I made this quote that you know if you're a founder, you kind of have to be you know Han Solo sitting in the Millennium Falcon. Um, you know when. You know, C-3PO tries to quote him the odds of, of you know, um, basically crashing. And he says, you know, never tell me the odds because that's the reality. A founder cannot look at the odds or complain about the lack of capital. And it's always somebody else's fault. You've got to just hack your way to a successful business. And of the founders you've seen in Australia, would you say that there is an attitude of being the Han Solo or? Yes. There is? Yeah. Definitely. And it's, um, I do think Australians are, 
you know, you can't generalize about about anybody. <laughs> but I would say um, I, I've felt I feel very privileged to have a foot in in both uh, the U.S. and in Australia. Having you know now I have an Australian born child, but um, so um, and I have very much affinity and, and affection for both countries and their relative strengths and weaknesses. And you know potentially I'm you know a little bit happier being an Australian now that you know the president is who he is. But um, so. Um, <laughs> But but in you know in, in reality I think Australians are very entrepreneurial because if you look at the history of Australia the tyranny of distance and and kind of the, the culture that 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 really is um, embedded here it is actually quite complementary to um, technology being an entrepreneur and particularly in technology so. Um, so I think that the environment's actually quite strong here. I think some of the governmental policies and some of the um, the rules, particularly around um, you know stock options to employees and 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 some of the those disciplines need to be improved um, to, for us to be more competitive. Um, but I think that there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of really good signs that Australia should continue to grow and and can crack that top ten list. It should, abs- you know, Sydney or Melbourne or Brisbane, you know, should be in that top ten of global startup communities, and that's where I'd like to see us. So, if on that positive note, mm-hmm. but then also looking at, you know, your experience in in the valley, mm-hmm. um, and you know, things that may have worked or may have not worked there, mm-hmm. do you see that maybe Australia is heading down a particular path in one aspect that you know? is early on now, but it can stop now and avoid, you know, uh, a failure? Yeah. Okay, so so failure is such a loaded word. And, you know, in Silicon Valley, if you haven't failed at two companies before the age of 30, you are a failure. Okay, so that is just embedded in the culture. In Australia, if you have been associated with a failed company by the age of, of 30, you know, it's, it's – um, you know, it's it's the inverse. So, so culturally, that's something that is 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 a concern for me because um, the reality is fifty percent of venture and ca- uh, venture capital deals fail. And you know, in order to 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 build a healthy ecosystem, particularly for you know technology and innovation, you need to have a healthy venture capital cycle. So that means. You need to have winners and you need to have losers. That's that's part of it. And to, to not delude ourselves, to say, how can we prevent the failures? That is actually a failing strategy coming into trying to build a tech ecosystem. Um, so that's one, you know, that's one issue I, I take. I take directly and head on because we are not going to be able to avoid our way out of failure into success. That is a f- absolutely a failing strategy. What I think we, what you can do to, to nuance that is that, you know, as investors at any stage of the game, and, and certainly in the earlier stages, you have to be pretty disciplined in terms of how you continue to support companies. So that doesn't mean, you know, one thing you have to be really disciplined about is, you know, deciding not to continue to invest in companies that that aren't working. Um, that shouldn't be uh, admission admission of a failure. That should be, you know, investment discipline and, you know, allocating capital to ideas that are working and making sure that those are the most supported ideas. Um, I also think as a founder, you know, again, if you go into a company as a leader of the company and fear failure, well, 
I'm not going to back you. You have to say, don't tell me the odds because I know they're stacked against me, but don't give them to me because I'm not going to be driven by fear. I'm going to be driven by opportunity. And if you think of anything in your life that has been, um, you know, an unexpected success or even expected success, if you focused on the downside and what was going to go wrong, um, you probably wouldn't have had the success that you did. And so that's why I like to change the dialogue a little bit is focus on the opportunity and not on the fear. And then in the instances in which things don't go the way you expected or hoped, there can be a variety of reasons for that. You could be too early for the market. You could be too have a too high customer concentration. There could be a bunch of other issues. You need to learn from those and you need to, to inform your next startup. So some of the best companies have been repeat founders that have actually learned. They've taken those learnings and they've integrated those learnings into into their next venture and you know that that's very interesting because you got you have to learn. Thanks for listening to episode 1 of Glass Ceiling. Be sure to leave us a review and let us know what you think wherever you found this podcast, whether it be iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. Rate and review. Yes, please, rate and review. We'll be back with a new episode of Glass Ceiling shortly, but in the meantime, you can check out Startup Meet Corporate, a podcast where our founder Matt Beachy and I explore different industries and the way they view and approach innovation.